Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me, I'm your host and interviewer each week. We're now in the second year of this being Franklin Covey's second global weekly podcast, both on audio and video, where we have unique conversations each week with typically someone in the C-Suite that we learn kind of the ups and downs and the two steps forward, one step back plan of their own trajectory where we get get, uh, vulnerable and insightful with people about the things they've done well and things that they would not repeat and have us not repeat as well. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Bracken Darrell. He is the president and CEO of Logitech. That name, of course, is very common to you. We'll learn more about what their purpose and mission and products are like. And joining us today from Northern California, Bracken, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thanks so much, Scott. It's great to be here. So what was the logic behind your parents giving you two first names? Well, you know, they were stuck with the last name, and then I'm not sure why they, they crushed me with this first name, but, but they did. Well, I it's can... Been, vi- it's been a great icebreaker, though. I'll tell you. It, I'm sure it has. I can vindicate you because my last name is Miller, but we named our three sons Thatcher Miller, Smith Miller, and Wentworth Miller. So we had to kind of keep the trend. So I, I'm empathetic to your journey about... Two first names and two last names. Hey, now, now, now I see why you invited me on the show. It's <laughs> exactly. I had to undo some of the damage I've done to my kids. It will take more than this interview to do that. Trust me. Uh, Bracken, I'm delighted you joined us today. Uh, we're going to talk about all things your career journey, leadership, some of the vulnerability that you have demonstrated, quite frankly, uncharacteristically for large c- company CEOs. You've talked openly about your own journey with um, what it's like to have moved from an immature to a mature CEO. You've talked about your passion around diversity, equity, and inclusion and how we're gonna accelerate that. You've talked about sustainability and environmental impact. So we're gonna gonna talk on a couple of those different themes today. Before we do that, will you take a few minutes and reorient all of our viewers and listeners to who is Logitech, what do you do, and how everyone can find their products in our homes? Sure, we're, uh, you know, Logitech was created 40 years ago, over 40 years ago. Uh, we were we were born at the early days of the PC age, and uh, we started out as a, as a mouse company like like Disney, and we've evolved our way into first we surrounded the PC, and we we went into all those things that you're used to you might know us for mice, keyboards, webcams, PC speakers, headsets, and then uh, about ten years ago when I came in, we started to, we went further, and we started viewing the cloud as our as the old PC, we started finding new things we could connect, including the equipment I'm on right now. We video-enable conference rooms. We make, we're the leader in gaming equipment for, for esports and, and gamers of all kinds. We, we create products for creators, so we're doing a lot of different things now. We're in, I think, 37 different categories. Bracken, thanks for the, uh, the breadth of the company. I didn't realize all of the business extensions that you'd been in, including, you know, uh, uh, capitalizing on our lives that are now virtual and in the cloud as well. Congrats on the expansion. We'll talk a little bit about your journey at Logitech in a moment, but your own journey to Logitech is quite remarkable. I mean, the reason I launched this podcast for Franklin Covey, the most trusted leadership firm in the world, was because I think it's so valuable to not compare, but to benchmark kind of our goals and progress and dreams with others. Like, how did that person do that? How did that person get there? Are they really that much smarter than me? Do they really work that much harder than me? So it's helpful, I think, to learn what your roadmap looked like. Because quite frankly, you're from Owensboro, Kentucky. Last time I checked, not the hot spot for large company CEOs. Perhaps it is, no offense to our friends in Owensboro. You took a little bit of a 
left turn and went to Arkansas for undergraduate school. You took a hard right turn and went east to a small school known as Harvard. Will you talk a little bit about how that sort of left-right-left trajectory took? You've had an amazing career. Take a few minutes and talk about how all that came together to where you are now. I grew up, uh, I did grow up in Owensboro, Kentucky. It's uh, around the border of Kentucky and Indiana. And um, I, when I, when I was in high school, I kind of discovered how much I loved leadership. And I discovered it through sports, like like so many people do. I was uh, I was the same height I am now. I'm, I'm I'm about six feet. I was this height when I was you know 12 years old. So I was always I was physically looked up to. I had two older brothers, and I was a pretty good athlete. And and so people would look up to me physically. Then as as everybody started catching me in height, and then many passing me, my athletic prowess uh, began to fade. But but the the feeling the the great feeling of of, of leading people and trying to do good you know, good things never faded. In fact, it grew. And so I then changed directions while I'm in high school and decided to try to get into more and more leadership positions. And I went to, when I graduated from high school, you know, my, my, my mom was first grade teacher, single mother. My, my, uh, so I was really looking for an affordable school with good academics and Hendricks college in Arkansas was fit that, uh, that, that spec pretty well. So I went to college, went to college there, majored in English, which is uh, a surprise to many who know that I, graduated and became a public accountant, which is the strangest, uh, another U-turn, I would say. But it was a planned U-turn. I was always better at math than I was at English. And I, I thought if I really want to be a leader, I've got to be able to you know, speak and write better. So then went, went into accounting right out of Hendricks College in Dallas, Texas, and then went back to business school, as you said, at Harvard, graduated from there, and, and, and was off to the races. And then once you graduated from Harvard, you then had a quite storied career that took you to Logitech. Take a few more minutes, because I think if anybody's listening or watching today, they're thinking, you know, Kentucky and then Arkansas and then Harvard. He got an undergraduate English degree, but then became an accountant. And this is, these are not natural paths. Talk about what happened after Harvard on your way to Logitech. Maybe I'll talk a little bit at Harvard, because anybody listening who's interested in, in leadership can relate to the, the imposter syndrome. You know, I was from a you know, small town in Kentucky, went to a very small college in Arkansas, in Hendricks, and then uh, through accounting with an English degree, I was unique when I went to Harvard Business School. And it's partly as a result of that, part of my own insecurities, I had the worst case of imposter syndrome probably the schools ever had. They didn't rush me out on an ambulance right away on day two, but I, or day one. But I certainly suffered through the first you know semester and, and maybe the first year. Um, and I'm only telling you that because there's so many people out there who, who suffer from imposter syndrome. And I'm just telling you, you're in good company. Uh, you know, so many of us did do, and you, you couldn't have had it worse than I did. Uh, when I graduated, I, I figured out pretty early that I wanted to go into um, I wanted to go into leadership through products or through through marketing and that combination and, and brand management. I discovered along the way it seemed like a really good place. So I I talked my way to an internship in the summer. Federal Express, which wasn't exactly what I just described, but at least put marketing on my resume. So the next year, uh, the big uh, you know, packaged goods company like Procter & Gamble would look at me for an interview, and they did. And, and so I ended up going to work for P&G after that. At P&G, my claim to fame was, uh, was the Old Spice brand turnaround. Um, I was very fortunate in my second year to get assigned to Old Spice when it was in deep trouble. And, and Old Spice had been acquired a few years before, and the CEO and a lot of the management had kind of given up on it. 
So they decided to take a risk on uh, on a a, a lowly assistant brand manager to to run a big piece of it. And I had several people move away at the top. And and before you knew it, I was was alone. And I came up with kind of my plan. I had a, a woman I was working for named Susan Arnold, who was just amazing. She came in. She and a guy named Mike Wagy came in a little later, strongly supported the, the an approach that, that I took, which was to change almost everything. And we turned the brand around, doubled the business almost overnight, and doubled again, doubled again. It became a, a great success story. So that was my first really great experience. Um, and it was a great experience. And I, I then left P&G a few years later, after seven years, and went to GE. I joined GE because I was really looking to could really accelerate my growth. And there was this guy named Jack Welch who was running GE at the time, and he was, he was everybody knew he was going to have a successor, and he had named his successors publicly. One of them was a guy named Dave Cody, and Dave was looking for a head of business development. I didn't know anything about business development, but I knew that I, I wanted to be around GE when Jack Welch was there. And then later when I realized how strong Dave Cody was, I was glad I did. And I, so I did that, got in, didn't know what I was doing in the first six months of business development, found my way around to do some things. And I then ended up just having a series of great experiences there. Dave, Dave by the way, went on to run Honeywell for many years very successfully. I, um, from there, I, I went to Gillette. And at Gillette, I was, uh, I, you know, I, I, I had an incredible experience under Jim Kelsey's leadership. And, and it was a big turnaround for the company. And I ended up running Braun out of Germany. And that was a global job, my first really pure live in another country global job. And, uh, you know, I made all the classic mistakes that an American can make who lands in a foreign country and doesn't speak the language. But I learned my way through them. And uh, we had a great, a great run there. We were acquired back by PMG, so I rejoined PMG again. I was actually very excited about it because Susan had moved out to become vice chairman. And uh, I was going in as a president. It was really exciting. And then a couple of years in, I realized this isn't going to work because what I really want to do with the business uh, P&G didn't, which was, even though they thought they did, the economics of what I was trying to do didn't work for P&G, and it made sense that it didn't work for them. So I left, and and uh, and then after a, a stint at Whirlpool, where I stayed for several years running Europe, Middle East, and Africa, I came to Logitech, and here I am 10 years later. I mean, it's remarkable, right? I mean, Logitech, Whirlpool, P&G, Arthur Anderson, right? Am I, am I correct along right, the way? The first one, yeah. Braun. Yeah. Braun, I mean, none of this makes sense at first blush in terms of it being a deliberate strategy. It seems quite all serendipitous, but maybe it's a mix of both. As you kind of look back, if you were teaching a college course on how to build a great career, what are some of the key insights you might tease from what is quite frankly not a linear line, right? I mean, I I mentioned CPA or at least an accountant and English degree and all this. What are some of the insights you would tease out for our listeners and viewers that could be replicable in their career, regardless of what their journey is? Well, I I guess the first one I'd call out is, you don't have to know exactly what you want to do with your whole life. But if you have a blurry picture of that big job somewhere out in the future that feels like a stretch, but but you'd like to do it, um, try to visualize that as well as you can. Uh, but not perfectly, because whatever it is, it's not going to be exactly that. And I, I had that when I was really, really young, you know, probably my uh, maybe 2021. 20, I wrote down on a piece of paper a few goals. And I always say, you know, gosh, whatever you do, have goals because they're free. They're, they're completely free. And they're, they're one of the most powerful things you can have. Because if you get conviction around your goals, you'll build a plan and you'll probably make it happen. People call that manifesting today, but I would call it good old fashioned goal setting. 
And I had a goal, which was I wanted to, one of the goals in my life was to become a CEO at the time. And I had this blurry picture of what that was. Um, I'd say, so, so that's number one. Number two, um, go for growth, personal growth. You know, personal growth, personal growth, personal growth. If you get yourself in a position where you're constantly being challenged and being uh, forced to grow, um, you will be amazed what a what a what propulsion that will put on your career. And you know, often the most difficult jobs, the ones where you feel like you went sideways for two years or something, end up providing such a powerful uh, layer or foundation for the next job. And I had that several times. I also had a couple jobs where I really went sideways to get to get where I wanted to go or even backwards. And that really paid off too. So I would say ignore the, the, the classic idea of a ladder and kind of think of it like you're scaling a, a, a mountain, you know, and don't hesitate to go sideways sometimes to go up or even backwards, even down a little bit to go yeah. up yeah. because you will learn from that. Bracken, earlier in our conversation, you said something I think that is insightful and that is, you knew that in order for you to become a leader, you needed to be a better communicator, both in terms of your written and spoken word. And I think that's something I'd like you to expand on because it's something that all of us need to improve on, no matter what our role is, formal leaders, informal leaders. Will you speak to what does that look like to you? As, as you're hiring executives, as you're perhaps um, exiting leaders that don't have those skills, what are some of the more practical writing and verbal communication skills that you think are implicit in great leadership? Well, first, first be a reader, because reading pays off in, in, in multiple directions. Amen. It'll make you a better communicator, writing and speaking, and it'll make you uh, smart and, and, and wiser. You know, so that's my first strong recommendation. My second one, uh, you, 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 you said, you know, what did I, why did I make those choices and what did I get out of it? I'm going to give you the uh, why I made the choice I described, which I envisioned kind of as this ability to speak and write better. I think what I got most out of this, though, was really the, the ability to understand people better and be a student of, of humanity. You know, and, and I really, one of the things that I had the enormous benefit of doing was reading constantly when I was in college. I think I ran 62 different works in one, one trimester when I was in college, just as an example. And what I didn't realize at the time was, what happens is you're actually inside the, the brain, the, 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 the passion, the emotion, the thoughts of other people when you do that. And it's, a, it's such a great cultivator of empathy. And now as I roll forward in my life, I realize the biggest benefit I got probably out of majoring in English was not the ability to write or speak. It was the ability to empathize with other people. And I'm still working on that, by the way. I'm not going to pretend that I'm the 99th percentile, but I do think when I look at leaders uh, that I work around, those that have the ability to, so we have, a lot of people call it EQ today. I think there ought to be an OQ, organizational quotient too, because there's an EQ that, that, that occurs inside a work environment. But, but I think that, that EQ is often the, the, the thing, the, the little difference between somebody who's really great and superstar. And uh, you always have to have intellect, but everybody has intellect. I mean, I'm thinking about age 33, the spread of what we measure as IQ really narrows. And it become, the difference becomes how people smart are you. Beautifully said, I forgot which guest it was, but in the last couple of months we had a CEO on of kind of similar stature of your career and uh, uh, organizational control. And he basically said one of the key talents he needs in his leaders is the ability to, ability to read the emotions of others 
to really understand, you know, can you, under, can you discern when that person looks this way or sits this way or gets up and walks around, what that means and how can you respond to that? I think it's a nice uh, compliment to what you said. I want to read something you wrote recently, Bracken, on LinkedIn. You have a large LinkedIn community, a lot of engagement. You write some very profound things. I really encourage everyone worldwide, I don't know if they can follow you or connect to you, but reach out and find Bracken on LinkedIn because you write some very thoughtful comments on your LinkedIn post. And here's one of them. Not quite sure how long ago this was, but once you'd reached the decade of you being the CEO of Logitech, amongst the many wise things you said on your LinkedIn, you said, quote, I was so immature in the early days. It took me a while to learn to embrace my board, but the board stuck with its headstrong, quote, adolescent CEO until today when I finally learned how effective a board can be for a CEO in a company. Perhaps the board part notwithstanding, why did you describe yourself as immature and a headstrong adolescent CEO? What did that look like and feel like and sound like those around you? And what, what does it look like now? You know, I think I, I use the board as, a, as an example because it's so clear to me in that particular case how, how undeveloped I was. You know, I thought of myself as having pretty decent EQ and boy, did I not demonstrate it to my board. You know, they had uh, strong feedback on our strategy, on people and all kinds of things. I found myself being defensive a lot more than, than I could imagine uh, anybody should. And I realized with the benefit of hindsight, man, oh man, what was wrong with me? I mean, I had so much to learn and I, fortunately they, they didn't throw me out with the, the bathwater of my bad first year or two results. And they kept me, and and the results got a lot better, and the and I got a lot better. I I'm still working on those, Scott. I mean, I tell you, I think, I think if you ever for a second think you're there on uh, yeah. on on EQ or or almost anything, you're usually just completely wrong, <laughs> even a little bit wrong. In the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion, for example, every time I feel like I've kind of mastered a topic. It's like my head pokes through the ceiling and I realize I'm in a gymnasium and there's all this other stuff that I don't know. And uh, so, so I'm, I'm really, this is a, really a cliche, but I've really learned how much I don't know the more I learn. It's really remarkable. Bracken, I want to again validate your, uh, your thoughts and your contributions on LinkedIn. I hope you keep going. And again, I invite all of the listeners and viewers to follow or connect to Bracken because it's some of the best writing I've seen from your peer group. In fact, let's talk more about you as the CEO. You said once um, you fired and rehired yourself as CEO. Uh, explain that concept. After about five years, I think the company had, had really turned around and we were going strong. You know, we were, we were worth about, you know, four, four or five times more than when I started. And uh, you really had a clear strategy. Everything was going well. And maybe the most important thing is the company felt so different to me from when I'd arrived from a, from a financial standpoint, but also from a, a cultural standpoint. And, and, you know, I was thinking, God, you know, it's changed so much in five years. And so one, one, uh, you know, holiday, one, as we were getting near the December holiday period, I was, I was thinking, God, you know, I, I always do my goals then, you know, and I also review my performance against last year's goals. And I was thinking, you know, if this company is as different or is, is, is even is so different in five years, 
imagine how different it's going to be in five more years because the world's moving so fast. So am I the right person to run it? If I was the right one to run for the five, first five years or one of the right ones? So I, I really thought through it. I wrote down kind of what I thought the, the next CEO needed to be like. And then I wrote, I re literally rewrote my specifications against that. And I probably would have been in the running, but I, I wouldn't have been an overwhelming first choice. But, but given my track record here, I probably would have gotten the job. But I, I started to think, yeah, but I've got this big Achilles heel, which is I own every strategy, every, every appointment to these, the big jobs here, and many of the small jobs, every product. I think, so, you know, I feel too much ownership. You know, there's no way I can do this. So I decided I'm going to, I got to stop. So I decided I'm going to fire myself. And, uh, and it was, uh, you know, whatever it was, a, 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 a Saturday night or something, I decided to fire myself. Now, I, I did decide to, to always sleep on decisions because I've learned that, man, you know, you sleep on decisions, it's amazing what happens at night in your brain. Many good things happen, sometimes scary ones, but usually good things. And you, you wake up the next morning with more clarity. And sure enough, I woke up the next morning and it was like I had one of those really moments of complete clarity. I thought, no, I absolutely am not going to fire myself. I'm going to write myself a new contract. The new contract says nothing I did before is off the table. I can change anything. And I really felt like a newcomer, you know, for the next, you know, six, seven months. Um, and if you let me add, Scott, I, I later shared that with my leadership team. Um, didn't do share anything for the first two or three months, but they, they, they were like, something's different. So one, one day I did share it with them. I shared it with my CFO and he had very early and he, he did the same thing or uh, metaphorically. And then I shared it with my leadership team. And I said, now I want you to all, I explained the whole story. And I said, now I want you to go find yourselves this weekend. Mm. And, and if you don't want to hire, if you, you don't want to rehire yourself, it's okay. I'm going to help you get a great job, et cetera. Um, uh, and it, but if, if you don't fire yourself this weekend, I will fire you at some point, and I probably won't rehire you. And I said it with that kind of definitiveness, and of course, I'm, I'm a nice guy, so nobody probably took me seriously, but I'm into it. Because I think you've got to constantly, especially after you've been in, a, in something for a while, you've got to try to reinvent yourself and start over. Superb insight, truly. Bracken, you've written a lot about and are committed to DEI initiatives in your own organization, diversity, equity, inclusion. You have similar passion about sustainability and your environmental impact. How are you feeling about you being like a leading voice in that? How is that going? How do you feel the progress is going in organizations around the world? And, and it's a broad question, I know, but I want to touch on it because it's something that you're passionate about, especially as a white male, you know, somewhat stereotypical leader in terms of your age and your race and such and your journey. Why is that? Why are those two issues of great passion to you? Well, you know, I'll start with sustainability and I'll go to the United. But sustainability became a passion of mine way back when I was at Braun. Uh, the, the 10 Principles of Design by Dieter Rams, who was the, this famous uh, designer for, at Braun, uh, they're on my wall in the, in the room next door to this. And I think number eight or nine says great design is, is responsible for the environment. And that really stuck with me. And I talked to him about that one time and I really, I just decided, you know, that's, that makes so much sense. And then the more I understood about global warming, the more concerned I got. And when I came here, I was concerned, but it, and, and we were already doing a lot of great things here, had, all, had been for years. And then Prakash Arvindran, who's my, currently our COO, and I had a long discussion about it, and, and he got super excited about it. He was super excited about it. Before you know it, 
you know, we were off to the races and, and now we're, we're, we're carbon neutral already. We'll be carbon negative or climate positive by 2030. We're carbon labeling everything. We're, we're ahead of almost every other company, certainly every other tech company, what we're doing. And it's still not enough. I mean, the world needs more urgency. There's a, there's a real sense of urgency here for us and for the world. And we're a little company, but we can demonstrate what can be done just, just with our little mouse company. Um, DEI is a different story. I, I grew up thinking I was one of the good guys. You know, my, my, I'll never forget taking, we did the long move from Abilene, Texas to Owensboro, Kentucky when I was six years old. And my mom was driving the station wagon. My dad was driving a U-Haul truck and we, we pulled over. My mom pulled over with us at a little roadside, you know, diner. We went in there and then my brothers and sister and I got sat down at the, at the little bar and my mom didn't make it to the bar. She's standing up there talking to the, the guy at the front who looked like the owner. And she looked angry. And my mom never got angry. She's the nicest person I've ever met. And uh, before I knew it, she came over. And I just, I didn't know she was behind me. She, I felt somebody pull my shirt and pull me off the stool. And she marched us out of there. And I found out later is because there was a sign on the door that said, you know, we reserve the right to serve who we choose. And she asked what that means. It was in Texarkana, Arkansas or Texarkana, Texas, and she said, she asked what that means when they, when that owner and proprietor gave her the answer. She said, well, you're completely wrong and I'm out of here. So are my kids and we'll never come in here again. Um, so I grew up with that. You know, my dad was saying- Bracken, stop we, there. I'm guessing the punchline of that is they preferred not to serve non-white customers. That's right, exactly. And, uh, and, and so I grew up with a, with a mother and a father who were um, on the verge of activists. I mean, they were as far out there for the, their time as you could be. And, and yeah, and so, and I was on the diversity council for GE and, and I did, I did so many things here. And then when I got to, uh, when George Floyd was murdered, about three or four days later, I was sitting at my kitchen table. It was mid pandemic. And I was, uh, I was sitting there thinking, how in the world are we still here after all these years? You know, I, uh, I, I was thinking about, um, you know, South Africa and apartheid. And I was thinking, and then I started to think there's a, there's such a vacuum at the top. Nobody's talking about it. You know, the president of the time didn't didn't talk about uh, George Floyd. Nobody was talking about it. I was thinking, well, God, what do the business leaders do in South Africa? Then I then I caught myself. I thought there must have been good business leaders who who were. And then, I, then I caught myself that you know I haven't talked publicly at all, not only about this but about Rodney King or anything. And I, it was like it hit in the head with a baseball bat. I mean, I and I've it, it hurt and it still hurts. And I was thinking, God, this is terrible. And uh, and so I immediately started working on something I could put on LinkedIn to just start. And then, and honestly, it was the most transformational event in my life. I it, I changed everything, including what I was angel investing in, how I thought about what we should do in the company. Kersey Russell and I, my my head of uh, people and culture just re, re, reset everything we were thinking about from a DEI standpoint. We had these seven points. So we went after everything. So that, that's, that's my story. Now, let me tell you the rest of the story. I'm quite disappointed with the progress we've made and uh, we, may, we have made in the United States and, and, and around the world, really. There's so far to go. And I'm disappointed with Logitech, too. I, I, I have not made enough progress here yet. Um, but don't confuse disappointment with a lack of enthusiasm. I am super into this. Uh, we are going to make progress. We're, I'm 100% resolved on this. And I realize now how hard it is. You know, this is not an easy path. And no leader, especially the white male leaders, are going to find this easy to do. And the only thing you can do is go for it and just don't let up. 
And it's up to us. You know, we can't leave it on the people who are marginalized to do the work. And uh, that's where I am. Brack and Daryl, you're the president and CEO of Logitech. I appreciate the wide ranging conversation today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.